You are listening to Vida Abundante, preaching every inspired word. We have started a verse-by-verse study of the Gospel of Jesus Christ according to John. Today we start with verse 1 and chapter 1. Who is Jesus? Who is this Jesus that we worship, that we gather every Sunday morning to come together to praise His name, glorify His name, pray to His name, give Him glory. We're all Christians, Christ-like in a certain sense. And, And so we gather every Sunday morning because there is this man who gathers us. Who is this man that gathers us? And that is the big question that the Gospel of John answers. That is the question that he presents at the very beginning by giving such a theological claim and by giving such an emphatic entryway into the person of Jesus Christ. And I want to make sure that you know who Jesus is. I want to make sure that you don't come to church just because church is a thing. I I want to make sure that you're not here because this is part of your checkoff list. Or I don't want you to come to make sure that this is kind of, well, my my wife, my husband dragged me here, so I got to be here, I guess. I I have to make it because if not, he's not going to buy me lunch afterwards. I want to make sure that you gather here, that you come to church because you know or want to know more of the person, Jesus Christ, as we sang today. See, the Gospel of John is so impressive, if if we skip ahead to John chapter 4, we we find Jesus conversing about this very topic. And John presents it in a way where it it makes complete sense what he's trying to do as Jesus confronts the woman at the well. The Samaritan woman that that comes to this, this, this wonderful question and she asks Jesus, where are we supposed to worship Jesus? And Jesus says, oh my goodness, you're asking the wrong question because you have no idea who you worship. So the question presented to you this morning, more than a study in the gospel, is making sure you know who Jesus is. Who do you worship? Who is this man that that you worship? Jesus told the Samaritan woman, you know not who you worship. The day will come when everyone will worship in spirit and in truth. And don't worry, we'll get to John chapter 4 as time comes. But I want to bring that out because this is what the gospel of John is really all about. In a sense, all the gospels have this common theme in mind. They are, in a sense, a biography of the life of Jesus. Why is there four biographies of the life of Jesus and not ten? Or like the heavenly celestial number seven? Or why isn't there just one biography of Jesus? Why do we have to have four different type of presentations on the person of Jesus Christ? Well, I have no answer for that, but the answer lies in what they all try to say and the message that they all give is that they're pointing to a person. And John does it in a very distinct way, unlike all the other Gospels. However, the Gospels emphasize this great message of of Jesus Christ, his works, his words, his his one-day return, and of course, the person of Jesus Christ. That is why we're talking about the Gospel according to John. Here we have an eyewitness to the gospel, to the, to the living word of, Christ, of God in Jesus Christ. Here we have somebody that lived with, that walked 
with, that ate with, and that learned under the person, Jesus Christ. If you examine the other Gospels, we have one, more, one other eyewitness, which is in Matthew, and Mark is a testimony uh, from Peter, and, and, and Luke is a historian that takes, gathers eyewitness accounts of the life of Jesus. But here we have firsthand this man that reclines at the bosom of Jesus or at the chest of Jesus giving us the story, the narrative of the life of Jesus Christ. Friends, this is what we're all about today and what we're going to be all about for the next couple of years in the Gospel of John and what this whole church is about for the rest of our existence here on earth. If we don't know Jesus Christ, chances are we're going to miss the mark on what our existence is. Why are we here? Why do we live? Do we live just to go to work, make money, have a good career, have a, have a good job, have, have, have money to pay the bills? What is it that we exist for? If Jesus isn't anywhere in that equation, then we have missed the mark. And, and it is true that you can just kind of close the Bible and say, well, yeah, I, re I really don't even believe in any of that stuff. So, so I, I mean, I'm cool where I'm at. And that's okay. Because as we will read... The light came into the world, and the world rejected the light. So it's okay. Jesus can be rejected. Contrary to popular belief, where Jesus is this awesome, super cool, homeboy kind of guy, the world has rejected him. They rejected him in his own town. So this Jesus is, is a very important figure and, and will have to be understood in the light of the context of how John brings him out. So I'm giving you a preparation of the gospel so that once we begin to read it, you'll understand why John says what he says and why Jesus says what he says when we read. This is important because Jesus in the life of the church is the central message of the first century church. This is the person that they preached about. The first century when Jesus existed 30, 40 years after he ascended into heaven, the church was left with the message. The church was left with the words. The church was left with the testimony of Jesus Christ. Can you imagine the difficulty of preaching about Jesus Christ in the first century? In 2019, it seems a little daunting to preach about Jesus because, yeah, it's about a man that died on a cross. We know the cross story. We know the Christmas story. We know the Easter story. I guess, I mean, religious people are religious people. Religious people are crazy people sometimes. And, and so I guess we, we understand why we preach Jesus. But can you imagine first century uh, Jews and Gentiles preaching about a person that not too long ago hung on a cross because he claimed he was God? Because he because he'd said that he was the king of the Jews, and as king, he died on a cross, and supposedly he resurrected? Can you imagine the difficulty of preaching that message in the first century when, when the people that possibly existed at the cross while Jesus hung there and knew about the story, they're, they're saying, you're telling me that that guy that hung on the cross, that, 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 that died along with two other thieves and sinners and robbers, you're telling me that person is God? Good luck, man. Yeah, uh, well, good. all power to you. Have fun on your, on your simple journey of preaching that message, but I want nothing to do with that because it speaks on what happened in this person. 
That's impressive to try to comprehend and to understand that that first century message was what propelled 2019. We're here talking about that exact same message. There is power in the name of Jesus. There is power in what he has done. There is power in his resurrection. There is power in our worship to him. We are here as living proof of the power of Christ in us. Gospel of John will present us with this wonderful person who is God. There are some important gospel distinctions in the Gospel of John. And, and once again, I'm going to try to fly through this because I don't want to make this a lecture on the Gospel of John. But there are some distinctions that we will be aware of. And if you guys are up for the task, read the Gospels this week. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Take a look. Read them. Don't watch Netflix for three nights out of the week and you could probably get through it. It's not that bad. You could read the Gospels in about two days. It's, it's not a tough task. You, know, you, you do have to set down Netflix, though. And, and read the Gospels, and you will come to some daunting conclusions where you'll be like, well, Matthew and Mark, they kind of share the same story, same, same type of framework. Uh, Luke, too, they start off with some genealogy stuff and reference toward Jesus Christ. But the Gospel of John is a little bit odd. It's a little bit distinct. It's a little bit separate in, in the wording and the way it starts and the way it presents Christ. As a matter of fact, some of the stuff that's in John isn't in the rest of the Gospels, and some of the stuff that are in the Gospels aren't in the book of John. So what's the deal here? You'll find these distinctions, but you have to come to an understanding of the point of view of John and what he is trying to present. Once again, it's the person of Christ, but he's giving us a little bit more insight on who this person is. This is very much a historical, theological book. That's why I love it so much. It touches history, it touches theology, and it combines them into one to prove to us and to its readers of the first century who this person of Jesus is. One of the first century commentators, uh, Clement of, of Alexandria, said that this was a spiritual gospel because it kind of has like the spiritual feel to it and this, in a sense, Gnostic feel to it. And that's why some of the early church fathers rejected the book and didn't want it in the canon because it felt too Gnostic. We'll get to that when we, when we come to those parts of, of the book. But, but it isn't just a spiritual gospel. If you look at some harmony of the Gospels, uh, you'll see that the book of John is, is, is compared to the image of the eagle because it ascends into the heavens and it talks about spiritual realities. Yes, it does, and it is very much historical. And, it, and this historical approach goes to show us that the person it is presenting, the Jesus it is showing and, and demonstrating and teaching us about was very much real. This is a historical approach to the life of Jesus Christ. It isn't just a theology of Jesus. It is a historical approach. And you'll see that if you read the Gospel of John, and I encourage you, if you don't want to read all four Gospels, well, at least read the Gospel of John for the... You know, do me a favor and, and make me feel good, you know, that you are reading your word and you're reading the Bible. Um, but read the Gospel of John and time and time again you'll be confronted with, with geo geology, geography, I mean. 
You'll be confronted with Jesus went to Bethany, Jesus went to Nazareth, Jesus went up to to Jerusalem, to the temple, to Capernaum. He spent his time in in his first miracle in Cana, in, in Galilee. You'll read all this geography in the context of the end of almost every chapter of the first 12 chapters. It's Jesus going up and down, and, you, and, if, and, and if you're um, inquisitive, you can kind of try to get an old first century map of, of the land of Israel, and you try to trace Jesus' steps, and you see him going up, and you see him coming down, and you see him spending some time right here, and you see him spending time in Samaria where he shouldn't have been because Samaritans and Jews hate each other, and you see all this stuff in Jesus' life because John is presenting to us a very real person, a very real gospel, a very real Life and history and, ge- and geography can help us understand that a bit better. But it, it goes a little bit further because some of the stuff is, is missing from the rest of the Gospels. For instance, Henry read from the Gospel of Matthew, and he read Matthew chapter 26 and the institution of the Lord's Supper. And here is a very critical moment where Jesus Christ instructs the church on, or, or his disciples on what they should be doing as, as part of the life of what will soon be the church. This is a wonderful instruction on the Lord's Supper or the Lord's table as we just partook today. However, in the Gospel of John, you read it up and down, you read the 21 chapters, and you're like, where is this institution if it's so important? Why isn't it in the Gospel of John? And, and the twist here is John is, once again, preoccupied with the person of Jesus Christ. And so because he is so preoccupied with the person of Jesus Christ, he presents us his message in a very theological type of framework. Once again, not only historical this time, but also very theological. And then you read John chapter 6, and he says, this is my bread. This is my, my, the body is my bread. Eat of my flesh. Eat of my body. And you begin to think of, what is he trying to say here? Well, what is this? concept of flesh and and eating and 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 if you read john chapter 6 you begin to identify yourself with some of the people that were like whoa this is a little bit weird dude you want me to eat your body you want me to eat your flesh i don't think so some people left some of his disciples were like jesus people are leaving and jesus says you want to leave too so he, he turns things around instead of giving an exact narrative of an occasion he brings in a theological influence that's why I've read in the Lord's Supper, I've read from John chapter 6 as opposed to Matthew 26 or, or Luke or, or 1 Corinthians 11, as opposed to those because I want to bring in this concept of what we're doing is presenting Christ as support for the church. He says, eat of my flesh, not the physical element of Christ's body, but what it means for our souls. We are nourished. The Christian is nourished by Jesus Christ. Other people are nourished by other things in life. Some people are nourished by their whatever it is that they're out there, what's out there, their girlfriends, their boyfriends, their spouses, their kids, whatever it is that nourishes and feeds them. The Christian lives off of every word and of the person of Jesus Christ. The transfiguration is not involved in the Gospel of John. We have no narrative parables. We have no kingdom of God motif that is involved, and that's very uh, much prevalent in the other Gospels, but it's not in the Gospel of John. 
Some of the unique figure, uh, features in the Gospel of John are very interesting. The first five chapters are kind of excluded from the rest of the Gospels. We have, we have in, the, in, in the first chapter this divinity concept in, in the logos, which we're going to get into today. We, we have in chapter, uh, chapter 3 this, this, this interview with, with Nicodemus, a Pharisee. We have in chapter 4 the Samaritan woman. It's, it's impressive to see everything that isn't added in the other Gospels, but is very much presented here because it brings in the person of Jesus Christ. And at the end of the book, we get this, this wonderful prayer towards the end where Jesus does the Lord's Prayer. Now, most of us think about the Lord's Prayer and we automatically go to Matthew. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. The kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we go on and we're like, oh, that's the Lord's Prayer. Well, that's not really the Lord's Prayer. That's a way to pray. That's how the Lord teaches his disciples to pray. The Lord's prayer is really in John chapter 17. We're going to get there in a couple years. But in John chapter 17, that's how Jesus prays. And in his prayer, he brings in this very motif of unity. Unity not only with God, but with each other. That becomes very important in the book of John. So, so this all leads us to, as we begin to read the Gospel of John, and it's going to be very real as we read the first chapter, what this all leads us to is the great purpose of the book of John. So since you are already in John, I want you to go all the way to chapter 20. Go to chapter 20, and we'll start off on verse 30. The Bible says this, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. Here's the point. But these are written so that you may, what? What is that? So that you may believe that Jesus is what? The Christ. That's going to be very important as we continue in our study. That you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the what? The Son of God. And that by believing, you may have what? Life in his name. The purpose of the book is to point us to Jesus Christ so that we may believe in Jesus Christ. But that's not it. People outside of these doors that are sleeping in their homes and eating breakfast right now, watching TV and having some coffee and eating their pancakes comfortably in their bed, in their bed and breakfast, wherever they're at, people out there believe in Jesus. Some of your friends and some of your family members believe in Jesus. Some of your family members may have already gone to church earlier today at 7 in the morning or at 8 in the morning. They may have called it a mass service. They may have called it something else. But some of your family members have already gone to church and believe in this Jesus. So what's the difference? Oh, the difference is qualified by the remainder of the verse that by believing in Jesus, they may have why do they have life? Because they not only believe in the man Jesus, but that the man Jesus is the Christ. And then it says, not only the Christ, but the Son of God. Those are very important as we tackle this, this uh, concept in, in the Gospel of John. So those things show us and, and point us to what the emphasis 
of John really is at the beginning of this chapter. And that's going to make more sense once we read the chapter. Once again, I'm giving you a framework to help you dive in. So when you study this on your own, you can understand these concepts. I want you to go with me to the book of Mark, the gospel of Mark. Let's just turn real quick to the gospel of Mark. Look at how he starts off in chapter 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way, the voice of the one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance and forgiveness of sins. How Mark starts off his, his gospel is by presenting us the testimony of John the Baptist. Look at Luke. I love how pages sound when they're turning, especially if it's the Bible. Luke, I love the first four verses. Luke says in chapter 1, And as much as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the one thing that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all of these things closely from some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. That's why Luke writes what he writes, but then he jumps right into, from verses 5 all the way to chapter 2, verse 20, into the birth narratives of both John and Jesus. It's pointing to us some genealogy and some prophetic voices that are coming through in the life of, the God, uh, of the, John the Baptist. And look at Matthew. Go with me to Matthew chapter 1. Chapter 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Here we have a genealogical approach as well as Luke. Luke goes all the way to Adam. Matthew goes to Abraham. But this presents to us a different understanding, a different concept of why Matthew writes what he writes. He's pointing to the genealogy to affirm amongst the Jewish people that this man, Jesus Christ, was really a Jew just like them. And this Jew is really God incarnate. That's why later on it'll, it'll touch base on Emmanuel, God with us. So these narratives of Jesus Christ begin at different perspectives, but then look with me on the Gospel of John. Go to chapter 1 in the Gospel of John and look at how it begins. Get ready because we're going to read 18 verses. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light but came to bear witness about the light. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not 
know him. He came to his own, and his people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not out of blood, nor of the will or the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried, This was he whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. It's the first time the mention of the name Jesus Christ. Verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. Only the one who is at the Father's side has made him known. This is the wonderful introduction into the life of Jesus Christ. Others begin with genealogies. Others begin with stories of birth narratives. John, the, John begins his book, his gospel, before in the beginning was the Word. So this purpose becomes very crucial for us to get. Don't miss what we're trying to achieve in this classroom. There are great universities that have great Johannian scholars that teach on the gospel but aren't living like Christ. I'm not here to give you facts about the book of John, I'm here to teach you about Jesus Christ so that you may believe in him. And by believing in him, your life is transformed by him with his life. You're here at church, not because you're necessarily good. You may understand that you're bad, but you're here because you need a savior. You need Jesus. I, my friends, need Jesus. Jesus, in every step of my life, in every aspect of my life, from fatherhood to, to being a husband, to being a student, to being a pastor, I need Christ's life in me. And in order to do so, I must know him. There has to come a point in time where you become sick of being a churchgoer. There has to come a point in time in your life where you're fed up with just church. Where this is just like Sunday morning, all right, let's get out of the way and let's go eat. There, there has to come a point in time where you, you come face to face with the person of Jesus Christ. The one who has saved you from the pit of hell. The one who stands at the right hand of God and has welcomed you into his fold. You have to come to grips with understanding this person. If not, you will never know who you worship. If not, Christianity will always be a religion to you. If not, Christianity will always be what your mom dragged you to church for when you were a kid. That's what I used to think Christianity was. My mom would drag me to church three, four times a week. I was like, man, if this is what the Christian life is all about, I don't know. Thursday night, 
three-hour prayer meetings, Tuesday night prayer meetings, Wednesday night Bible study, Sunday morning, and then Sunday afternoon too. Goodness. There has to come a point in time where you meet the person of Jesus Christ. This is, what I, this is the, the, the point of what I'm trying to do here. Go to Galatians. This is all, by the way, a form of introduction into what we will be talking about for the next couple of years. But here's my point. If, if you want to know why we're studying the book of John, here's why we're studying the book of John. Paul says it like this. In chapter 4, he, goes, uh, he, he gives a big spiel uh, about his concern, his pastoral concern for what's going on to the Galatian Christians. But then in, in verse 19, it's an abrupt verse, but in verse 19, he says, My little children for whom I am again in anguish of childbirth until Christ is what? Is formed in you. Once again, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Here is a pastoral approach of what the purpose of preaching the gospel is really all about. The reason why I stand here, first of all, is to see my life formed by Jesus Christ. And not only my life, but my family's life formed by Jesus Christ. And all my children's life formed and conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. But the reason I stand to proclaim a message to you guys, because not only do I love you in the love of Christ as families of Christ in one, in the unity of Christ in one, but my goal in my mission in life as a pastor is to see that your life be formed by Christ. And that at the end of the day, you and you and you and me and you and you all look like Christ. We believe in him and he has given us Shaped by Christ. That is what the message of Paul was in the epistles. That is what the message of the early church was. That is what the church is really all about. There's this famous rock star that copied the quote from Mother Teresa. This rock star's name, you may know him. I, I love the band. You too. Bono said, I have a problem I don't have a problem with Jesus. I have a problem with Christians. And in the beginning, it kind of makes sense. You're like, man, Bono, well, yeah, you're kind of right, man. And Mother Teresa actually was the one that said it. Bono copied her. And, and you, you kind of think like, yeah, that's kind of true, man. But, but Bono's, Bono's talking about a superficial Christianity. And see, we're not here to make superficial Christians. We're not here to incubate sinners. We're not here to cater to your everyday needs and make sure you're well entertained so that you come back next Sunday. As a matter of fact, if you don't come back next Sunday, it, it, it's sad. But in a way, it's like, well, you're, you're, you're drawing your line. You understand that here we don't mess around or we don't play church. It gets me sad, but maybe hope, hopefully one day you come back. But I, I'm not here for that, or none of the pastors are here for that. We're not here to entertain, and we're not here to kind of just cater to your needs and make sure you feel good at the end of the service. Make sure that I smile a lot so that you feel uplifted and motivated to go conquer your week. No. I'm here 
to show you who the person of Jesus Christ is so that regardless of whatever what I say, you can live your great moments today, tomorrow, and then even in the hard moments of your life, you're dependent on Jesus Christ, not the pastor. You're dependent on him and not some guy on TV. You're dependent on him and not some book you're reading. You're dependent on Jesus Christ because he is being formed in you and not something else. That's the message of what we want to achieve and what we want to bring out, and that's why we present this gospel to you, and we're going to spend a lot of time in it because you need to know Jesus, and so do I. So look with me once more to John chapter 1, and here we go. John chapter 1, the prologue is the first 18 verses that we read. We can break it up into four different parts. Verses 1 through 5, 6 through 8, uh, 14 through 16, or we could put 14 all the way down there, 18. But I'm really going to focus in on the first two verses these next couple of weeks. And here's why I want to focus on these two verses. These two verses teach us three things about the Word. And we're going to learn a, a bit about what the Word means. But if you notice... Verse 1, it says, in the beginning was the Word. So, three things in these two verses that we learn about the Word. First of all, it's a time, the time concept. In the beginning, we're going to learn about the Word, about His pre-existence. The Word, as we, will, as we read in verse 17, is Jesus Christ. And we're going to get there, and we're going to understand how those to relate. We're going to learn that the Word is also with God. So not only the pre-existence of the Word, but the fact that the Word was with God. That's the second part that we're going to learn. And then we're also going to learn one of the most incredible statements that is said in, in, this first ver in these first two verses. And the Word was. God. So we're not only going to learn that the Word existed before time, we're going to learn the unity of the Word with God, the Father, and we're going to learn about the Word being God. Something that didn't grab the, the first century church, they couldn't understand this concept. Something that even the modern day Jehovah Witnesses don't understand what this implies. It's, it's baffling, and I love reading the, the church fathers because the church fathers, the way they say things is, is, is so impressive. And, and, and Augustine is writing uh, uh, his sermon on, on, on John chapter 1, and Augustine, the 5th century theologian, he starts writing his commentary, and, and he presents the, the arguments, and he says, are you, are you asking me, a mere man, to give you an explanation of how the Word and God are one? Who am I to explain that concept? And the, the big theologian like Augustine can, can make me feel so much better to say, man, yeah, explaining God and the Word is a, is a, bit, is a great task. Not even the 5th century theologian like Augustine could do it. But he says, I'm a mere man. What am I to explain of the great things of God? Because there is so much depth to it. And this is the importance of why we're going to dig into it. So the first two verses will present these three cases. 
And if we don't get that right, if we don't understand that, then a lot of what John says in the rest of the gospel just plainly will not make sense. But in order to understand these three areas or these three cases, one must begin with what John begins with. He says, in the beginning was the Word. So let's get that straight. Let's understand what that word, capital W word, actually means and why John uses that. Can you, can you think of a, why, that, why that's the case? If Once we study a little bit about the beginning, you, you'll see that Genesis chapter 1 says in the beginning, God... So we, we kind of get this affirmation of that in the beginning there was God. God does everything. So we get this concept of a God. But John presents the gospel like, in the beginning, the Word. Like, where does that come from? If you examine the other gospels, that's nowhere to be found. As a matter of fact, it's only mentioned four times in the first 18 verses and never again. Who is John talking about? Why is John using this concept of word? Why is he presenting it to the front? And why is it important for us to get? Well, the importance of it is found in verse 20, verse 31, what we read at the beginning. We read that this was an evangelistic approach to the gospel for people to believe in Christ and in believing in him have life. So this concept of the word has Jewish overtones as well as Greek philosophical ones. So we'll, we'll get in as much as we can today to understand why he uses this word, but at the end of it, we're going to realize the real case of why John uses the word word. I know it's a little, <laughs> the terms are a little bit funny, but, but we'll get through it. So let's understand this concept of the word. If, you, if your English Bible, many English Bibles have the, the, the word word with a capital W. So look at your Bible right now and you'll notice that the word word has a capital W. And, and so we have to understand it in that way. When it's, a capital, when it's capitalized, it's a proper, proper name. It, it's referring to the title of someone. This isn't just speech. This isn't just something that comes out of one's mouth. This is a person. And John is presenting us with this person as the word. Why? Well, let's start off in some Greek philosophical uh, point of view. What, what did the Greeks think in the first century, which obviously was predominant in, or, or had some influence in Roman culture, and they called them the Hellenists that came in and they brought Greek culture into the, the arena and they combined a lot with Roman culture. And so a lot of this predates first century, especially when you talk about the great philosopher Plato and Heracles, and, and they all come in with this understanding of the word or the Greek term as, as it's used in John, the logos. The logos is the, the Greek translation for Word And so they had this understanding in a very philosophical type of sense that the, that the Word was the one that brought order to the cosmos, was the one that put things in place and gave it all reason. The Stoics in the first century and, and, the, and 
before the first century began to bring in this concept of the divine principle that is spread throughout the universe that holds everything together. That's what the Stoics believed the word was. And then we have this first century uh, Hellenistic uh, philosopher called Philo, a very famous uh, uh, philosopher of the first century so if you want to look him up look him up he's an interesting character but he's jewish with greek overtones and he kind of combines these both notions and brings them as a creative being that drives the universe so it's kind of he's the one that puts this word in the driver's seat of the universe and he does so without combining god and the word. So in all of this sense, the word is separate from God. It isn't God. It is separate from it. That's the Greek, that's a, that's a really a race through Greek philosophical background. The, the Jewish background, to finish up, it, it stems in this concept too of the powerful word of God was the one that created all things. So the word for the Jewish reader, the one who's reading this this first century letter, understood the word in the concept of the creative force behind creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And God said, let there be light. And God said, let there be life. And God said, and God said, and God said, and God said, and God said. The things that God said came to existence. So for the, 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 the Jewish person, they understood the word concept on that level. Oh, it's the creative force behind God. It is the speech of God involved in creation. So there's a a lot more in that, but time has run out. But I want you to begin to formulate this thought so you could understand or try to really comprehend, then why does John use it? And if you want to know why John uses it, I, I urge you to come back next week, and we'll dive deep into why John uses that word. But don't leave today Without knowing this, you and I need to know this word. You and I need to know Jesus and be transformed by his life. Amen? So let's stand to our feet or on our hands if we can. So wake the person up next to you and be like, let's dig deep. I would encourage you guys to have reading parties. Can you imagine a reading, a book club on the Gospel of John? Wow, that's so Oprah. But, but I urge you to, hey, hold people accountable to yourselves. Hey, I'm, I'm going I'm to read the first uh, 18 verses, and tomorrow I'm going to read the, the up to 51, and, and try, to, try to do it. You know, if, it, if the Gospels are too much to ask, then do the whole book of John by next week. And I'm not going to check who did it at the beginning of the door, but I love the fact that I'm not omniscient, and God will know who read the Gospel of John next week. So let's pray. Father, thank you for your wonderful word. Thank you for the word who is revealed to us as Jesus Christ. Thank you for bringing him into our realm. Thank you for coming down through him, incarnating yourself in him 
to give us life. Father, we recognize Jesus Christ as the Son of God, as the Word who was God. And we pray that we know Him. I want to know Him. I want to be confronted by Him. I want to be shaped by Him. I want my life to represent Him and not some organized religion. Be with us for these next couple of months, possibly years, as a church, as we go through this gospel to learn about the person, Jesus Christ. We pray all this in his name. Amen.